This is Messianic Rabbi Stan Farr, and I want to welcome you to our new series on the Book of Matthew. Each week on RabbiYeshua.com, we will be bringing you a new lesson on the Book of Matthew, and will continue through the book for the next 52 weeks. If you enjoy the study, I would like to ask you to consider making a donation to the site to help us defray the cost of bringing you this study each week. Let me say thank you in advance, and now let's go to the teaching. But if you remember, last week we started something new. We decided we were going to go through the book of Matthew, and we found that Matthew started his uh, letter or gospel, his genealogy of Yeshua, in a manner that attempts to tell his brothers, Look! Here's the one you've been looking for. This is the one that God promised Abraham that the nations would be blessed through. Here's the lamb that Abraham referred to when, when he said God himself will provide the lamb. He tells him that the continuation of the blessing to the nations that was seen in David's tent is going to be fulfilled because this is the one who will rebuild David's fallen tent. David's tent was not made up of just Jewish people, not just Israel. No, it was made up of those from the nations as well. Not even David's mighty men were all Jewish people. Uriah was a Hittite, and he was a mighty man. The tabernacle of the Lord was a place for all nations and for all people who feared the Lord. Neither the tabernacle nor the first temple built by Solomon had a court of the Gentiles. And he's telling us that this is the one who will rebuild David's fallen tent where all nations can come and be blessed. And of course, I ended the message with what all of that meant for us. Matthew is telling us that this is one book. You can't separate Messiah from the root of Torah. You can't separate Messiah's teaching from their root in Torah or they're no longer life to you. The next thing that Matthew does is he goes to explain the lineage of Messiah a little more fully. And we're going to look at it more closely in a moment. But here's something even more revealing about the generations that Matthew lists. Something that continues to explain away the doubts of the virgin birth. And to offer further proof that Messiah would come in a, in a way that would not be understood by all. Something prophetic, something hidden in those generations. Something he started to explain as he mentioned in Abraham's lineage that, look, Abraham had Isaac through a miraculous birth. And so he continues, and I want you to note that there are four women mixed in these generations. Something that you rarely see because it's seldom done because the lineage is always traced through the man. Note that first there's Tamar, who we'll look at in a moment. Then there was Rahab, a prostitute. There was, there was Ruth, one who was redeemed, a redeemed widow. And while not mentioned by name, she was certainly alluded to as Uriah's wife, speaking of Bathsheba, an adulteress. Let's look at verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Parates and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You know, if we look at the story of Judah and Tamar, 
and Tamar's son parades in Zerah, we get this amazing story. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, dresses herself up like a prostitute so that she can sleep with Judah to produce children. She does this because her husband and Judah's first son died without giving her a child. And so she was given to the next son in the Leverite tradition. And the second son was to produce a son for Judah's first son and carry on his lineage. But then that son also does evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he dies. And Tamar, being widowed twice and still without child, should have been given to Judah's youngest son to produce offspring for the other sons. But Judah, now weary, would not give her to his youngest son out of fear that the same thing was going to happen to the youngest son as the other two. And so... You should know the story. The entire chapter of Genesis 38 is about it. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and she sleeps with Judah for a sheep. Judah doesn't have the sheep with him, so she takes his staff, his cord, and his seal as pledge until Judah would bring the sheep. And then Judah returns with the sheep, but now this mysterious prostitute is gone. He can't find her. Tamar becomes pregnant through this deception. And later, when Judah learns that Tamar is pregnant, still not knowing it's his child, he thinks the worst of her. He thinks she's a whore and orders her to be put to death as an unfaithful wife of his son. And Tamar sends him his staff, his cord, and his seal with a message. Whose seal, whose cord are these? And Judah immediately sees his error and declares of Tamar, she's more righteous than I. And Tamar gives birth to two sons through Judah, one of whom will be the great-grandfather of David and so also of Messiah. And through this unlikely relationship flows the lineage of Messiah. The point being, the lineage of Messiah comes through some, some strange lines. And if the worst is thought, it looks tainted. But God didn't think so. He chose some unlikely people to bring forth the Messiah. And you know something? There's going to be some Jewish people one day who have thought ill of Mary and even spoken ill of Mary who are one day going to have to say of Mary, she was more righteous than I. So that God would choose a virgin who would miraculously give birth as Sarah had miraculously given birth, that would appear to be harlotry and would be taken as such should not surprise us because we see it all prophesied in these stories, in the story of Tamar, where Judah would accuse her of harlotry, even as the Jewish people accused Mary of harlotry. And so we see these things foreshadowed in Scripture. And at any rate, Matthew, who's probably writing after the destruction of the temple, is in some way showing that Messiah did come through a miraculous birth. The Holy Spirit did overshadow Mary, and yet he was descended through David. Now he also lists Bathsheba. Again, a story, in the story we're seeing a hidden meaning here. 
Just as some were saying Messiah's birth was illegitimate, David's line is littered with seemingly disturbing and seemingly irreconcilable stories. David desires another man's wife. He sees her and he takes Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant. And then to cover up his sin, David sends her husband Uriah the Hittite to his death and marries her. And so this son is conceived because of their sin. And I want to read as Nathan the prophet rebukes David in a parable. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So Nathan tells him a parable. And in the parable, of course, the ewe lamb is Bathsheba. And David is the rich landowner. And Uriah the Hittite, the poor farmer who loved the lamb. And David, indignant over the injustice done, says the rich man must pay for his sin. And Nathan then says to him in verse 7, you are the man. So David is exposed, and by his own words he says, the man must pay the price for what he has done. And he sent Uriah the Hittite to his death, and the penalty for such a thing, of course, is death. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Kill a man, and you die also. But not only that, the penalty for adultery, death. And so David's sentence should be death on both counts. But then we read, In chapter 12 and verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Because by doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord and showed utter contempt. The son born to you will die. So David, the Lord tells David, one of the sons will pay the price for his sin. And sure enough, even though David pleads and begs in prayer, the first son dies. And David and Bathsheba conceive another son, Solomon, who becomes king. And this strange behavior is a foreshadowing of the comings of Messiah, the first son foreshadowing Yeshua's first coming when he would die for the sins of the father, and the second son foreshadowing him returning as king. Something else about these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, They were all Gentiles. And they loved the God of Israel. Tamar, the rabbis point out, was a prophetess. She was unwilling to let go of the promises of God. She was unwilling to let go of the Jewish people through whom the promises of God would come. And Rahab, the prophetess, 
the prostitute. A woman of questionable character saw that Israel was blessed, a blessed people by God, and would not let go of those promises. And she hid the spies and was spared the destruction of Jericho. And finally, Ruth, who was a widow, she would not leave her Jewish mother-in-law. And then she's married to Boaz. And you all know it's a beautiful story. I'm not going to go into it today, but it's enough to say she was redeemed by her kinsman redeemer. And so why does Matthew go out of his way to list these women whose story we all know? Well, we only need to go to the book of Acts. We looked at it last week. We'll look at it again. Acts chapter 15 and verse 12 says this. Then all the multitude kept silent and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought amongst the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who does these things. One of the things that Messiah, the son of David, was to do was to rebuild David's fallen tent. And it's a twofold process. First, he's going to gather the people of Israel, and then he's going to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, those from the nations. In these prophecies, we see they were true Gentiles, not the lost tribes as some would have you believe, but those from the nations. Read the story of David and Solomon, and you'll find that the nations were flowing to the God of Israel during this period of history. It was part of the expectation of the Messiah that this would happen again. We just spoke of Uriah the Hittite, one of Uriah's mighty men, one of David's mighty men, a Gentile. The first century Hebrews knew the nations would flow to the Messiah just as they did David, and even more so Solomon, his son which was a shadow of the Messiah. And this is something that will be alluded to over and over through Matthew's Gospels. I'm going to be bringing it up over and over again because he's trying to draw attention to it because it's something that these people of Israel will associate with Messiah's coming. And not only that, Gentiles are coming to faith in Messiah. Paul knew it, and he gave his life to accomplish it. And now as Matthew is writing his gospel, and Paul has already passed away, and Gentiles are coming to faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And we can find this promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations over and over through the prophets. Isaiah tells us this. In Isaiah 49, verses 6 and 7, he says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down. 
Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And again, he says in Isaiah 51 and verse 4, it says, listen to me, my people, hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. My arm will bring justice to the nations. The islands will look to me and wait and hope for my arm. Every one of the women that are mentioned in the lineage is a non-Israelite from the nations, grafted into Israel, part of the lineage of Messiah. And I believe Matthew is pointing to the fact that Messiah will come through some seemingly strange birth, but he's also telling us that the body of Messiah will be made up of Jew and non-Jew. Pointing to the fact that Paul and Peter have been winning Gentiles to the Messiah. Remember, this is being written after they've been martyred. You see, the problem with two-house teaching, which says that we're all really the lost tribes, if the good news is really about God gathering the lost tribes, then the promise to Abraham and the promises of Isaiah and the things alluded to through these women who were Gentiles who loved the God of Israel and he loved them, the promise of rebuilding David's fallen tent are not realized. Making God the God of the Hebrews only and not the God and creator of all men, that gets lost in the shuffle someplace. Gentiles coming to faith is one of the signs that Messiah has come. And it was one of the expectations of the first century. That's why the Pharisees of the first century were of an outreach mentality. And we can see this in the words of Yeshua. He says in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut up the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And then he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as you are. And the thing I want to point to is here is the outreach mentality of the Pharisees of the first century because you don't see that in Orthodox Judaism anymore. They were reaching out to the nations and making converts because they were expecting Messiah and they knew that it was a sign of Messiah, that the nations would flock to him. And Matthew is trying to tell his people, he's saying, hey, look, this is happening. Look, Gentiles are coming to faith in the God of Israel. I've got to tell you, if you teach people that they're of the lost tribes, you remove this wonderful move of God from Scripture. You remove this beautiful grafting in of the nations through Messiah. I don't know about the rest of you, but I love Hebrews. I love the Hebrew people those who are the natural offspring of Jacob. But I'll also tell you this, I don't want to be one. I want to be an Irishman because that's what God made me. Because I'm part of and proof of this great love that God has for all men and all nations. And by declaring that, I prove to the world that God is not just the God of Jacob, but he's a God that desires all men to turn to him. And he was willing to send his son into the world to accomplish it because he loves 
his creation. Yes, we're grafted into Israel. The Kehillat of Yeshua is European, it's Asian, it's African. Because while he's the God of Israel, he's also the God of creation. I wasn't born into any covenant. Brought into a covenant before I knew what was going on. No, I'm like Abraham. I'm not part of Israel. I, like Abraham, was sitting in the midst of heathens and idolaters. And I said yes to God and left those things. And God did not call me out as part of a people group. No, he saw value in me as an individual. I don't understand why. But he saw value in me as an individual in that I desired to leave life as I knew it and follow God like Abraham did. And he called me out of the nations. And to my way of thinking, folks, it don't get any better than that. Okay, that said, I'll quit preaching now. <laughs> but you see, there's another problem, and that is if you compare this lineage in Matthew to Luke, they're not the same. And there's even a greater problem, because if you compare it with historical data, it's not correct. There are generations removed. He lists off exactly 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and then 14 from the exile to Yeshua including Mary. Why the repetition of 14? Well, I think it can be explained if we look at the way Hebrew literature is written and the fact that he's alluding to the, some other things that he feels are more important than being completely accurate. The first thing to look at is in the name David. Remember how important it is to show that Messiah is descended from David. If Yeshua isn't descended from David, then he can't be Messiah. He can't be the king of Israel. Well, if you look at the Hebrew language, they have a system of letters and numbers. They're interlinked. Hebrew letters are assigned numbers, and the rabbis have long totaled the numbers of names and so forth to find hidden meaning in the text. And I, I don't really know how much stock I put in that type of inter, uh, interpretation, but you need to realize that it was done. And so it's very likely could be used by Matthew. And if we look at the numerical value of the name David, we find why Matthew might go out of his way to list 14 generations. The word David consists of three letters, Dalit, Bav, Dalit. Dalit has a numerical value of four. Bav has a numerical value of six. And another Dalit, a numerical value of four. Total them all up. And what do you get? 14. David's name has a numerical value of 14. Could this be the reason that Matthew ignores accuracy to list off 14 generations? So Matthew in these generations, is he saying, this is the son of David, David, David. He lists the generations of Yeshua in groups of 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the dispersion, and 14 to Yeshua. Now, besides being different from Luke's genealogy, it's different than the account in the Chronicles. Even though he must have, it's obvious he must have used those accounts in the Chronicles to establish this genealogy. He has added a generation between Aram and Nakshun and left out three between Joash and Ahaz, one between Josiah and Yechaniah, and, the, and, and one between 
Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. So again, you have to wonder what he's getting at, why these additions and omissions. Well, if we look at uh, these generations, we might find something else in these generations. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now, we spoke of uh, why Matthew went all the way back to Abraham and concluded that Matthew, Matthew was after something else in his genealogy. And we find some other things at work if we examine these men carefully that we don't find if we just went from the genealogy from David forward. First, what I spoke of er earlier. Why, if you're not of Hebrew descent, that it's a good reason that you don't feel like a second-class citizen. If you're not from Hebrew descent, that doesn't mean you're a second-class citizen. Because with Abraham, what we find is the process of divine selection, of God choosing. Abraham was chosen out of the entire world to be the agent of God. Scripture tells us that it was because he would raise his children in the way they should, in the way of the Lord, in the way they should go. I also think that the Lord wants us to know that he is the God who chooses. He chose Abraham. He chose you. And not only that, but like Abraham, Messiah is the chosen one as well. He's the teacher who will teach you the way of the Lord if you open up your hearts to his influence. Listen, he also includes Isaac. Again, a son who was chosen over an older offspring, Ishmael. And we find he was the obedient son. As we saw at Rosh Hashanah, he was obedient even unto death, even as Yeshua, too, was obedient to his father and trusted his father unto death. And even as Isaac was figuratively received back from the grave, so too God was faithful to re reward Yeshua's obedience with life from the dead. In Jacob, we see a story of a man who really overcame this life. To become a prince with God. We also see in Jacob divine selection. He was not the firstborn but he was the brother of Esau. And we see, even though he was not the heir, that God chose him to carry the promises given to Abraham and Isaac. He struggled in life. He overclaimed this life, even as Yeshua struggled and overcame. In Judah, again, we see this divine selection. He wasn't the firstborn, nor even the second, but he was the fourth. He wasn't the firstborn. He wasn't even the firstborn of beloved Rachel, but he was the fourthborn of the unloved Leah, who the Lord took pity on. And so we see this process of divine selection, of God choosing. Listen to Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Speaking of the Messiah. And so with this prophecy, we can easily see 
Why the inclusion? To show that God is the one who makes divine selection. Not just through birthright, but he's the one who selects. And praise God that he selected us. Amen? Verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Parates and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Parates, the father of Hezron. We spoke earlier of this story of Judah and Tamar. And the Messiah is shown here to be descended through Parates. And again, we see this process of divine selection. As twins are being born, Zerah sticks his hand out from the birth canal so as to be the first one. But then Parates breaks forth out of the womb. And the midwife declares, so this is how you've broken out. Parates means breakers. And the rabbi spoke of Messiah being descended through Parates in the Talmud. I want to read it for you. It was this that Saul meant, whether he descended from Parates or Zerah. If he descended from Parates, he would be king, for a king breaks for himself away, and no one can hinder him. If, however, he's descended from Zerah, he would only be an important man. So they make kind of a play on words here with the name, the king breaks away, because Parates means breaker. Let's read on. It says, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nakshun, Nakshun, the father of Salmon. Nakshun has, is an interesting character and with messianic implications. As, as we read in this Midrash, Nakshun ben Aminadab, the leader of the tribe of Judah, was the first to obey Moses' command, and he walked forward until the water was up to his neck and the sea split. He was the first, by tradition, the first to go down into the sea and part the sea for the rest of Israel. Just as Messiah, Yeshua, the prince of the tribe of Judah, parted the sea for us. The lineage continues in verse 5. It says, Salmon, the father, father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We spoke of these people already, but there are a few other things we should note, particularly about these women. Rahab and Ruth are spoken of as prophetesses. Rahab is spoken of as the mother of ten prophets. She's the mother of ten prophets and of Messiah. Ruth, too, is, is highly regarded, as well she should be. And in these women, in each case, we see women who would not let go of the promises of God, nor the people of God, because they saw they were a people who were blessed by God. They were Gentile women who attached themselves to Israel. They were grafted into the olive tree, and I believe they're prophetic of the makeup of the body of Messiah, of Jew and Gentile. All of these women were overcomers of this world. Boaz, too, was seen as one of four men who overcame his passions in life, in that he had... Ruth sleeping near him, yet he overcame his passions until they were wed. But we should not think a Messiah came through a line of just righteous people or righteous kings because David had problems. And we all know of Solomon's disobedience. But let's look at some of the others now as he goes through some of these others. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, 
Reboam, the father of Abiah, Abiah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Yotham, Yotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shehaltiel, Shehaltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Elohim, Elohim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zaduk, Zaduk, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elud, Elud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Yeshua, who was called Messiah. And we could probably continue with individual stories of these kings, but the essence is that we have bad kings and we have some good kings who overcame the sin of their fathers. Terrible kings like Manasseh and Ammon. And then we have the son of Ammon, Josiah. He has a heart for God. He finds a copy of the Torah and renews the covenant with the people. And so through the lineage, we see the sovereignty of God, that he will choose who he will choose. Abraham was chosen. It doesn't need to be the firstborn because the first are often last and the last are often first, as with Jacob and Judah and Parates. God sees the heart. And so often with these stories, what we see is a person of little importance is chosen by God. And we see God looking at the heart in Judah and even more in those stories of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And we see that Yeshua didn't come through a people who were sterile, but that his lineage has problems. David and Bathsheba, Solomon had their problems, not to mention these kings like Manasseh and Ammon. But these types of things were in Yeshua's lineage Yeshua would overcome that nature that entangled these men and live a life that was pleasing to God, even as Josiah overcame that nature and caused the sin of his fathers. And Jacob turned back to Torah. The point being, the human fallenness, fallenness of the lineage of Messiah and the whole of this points to some things about Messiah, and I'm sure they were things that came to Matthew's mind as he wrote his letter to convince his brothers that this Yeshua was the Messiah. First, as I said last week, remember Luke's account is slightly different. Luke goes all the way back to Adam to draw our attention to the first son of God, Adam. That this Messiah Yeshua is the Son of God, the second Adam, as pointed out in our New Covenant scriptures. Certainly if we combine this letter of Luke's gospel, whose main thrust is that Yeshua is the literal Son of God, that point is something these writers go out of their way to make. Yeshua is the Son of God. You know, it's hard for me to imagine, and I'm sure there's no way that we can understand what it must have been like to be Yeshua. Did you ever think about this? 
What must it have been like to be Yeshua? To have agreed to leave eternity. Can you imagine that? You agree to leave eternity and the Father to become a man and forever be a man, not just a man in the sense of the perfection with which Adam was initially created, but he came in the sense of a fallen man. I mean, think about it, folks. We are in a verse or two going to speak about the birth of Yeshua. Yeshua not only decided to come to the earth to redeem man by dying, but he came into the earth as an infant. Here's one that through him all things were made, and nothing was made that was not made through him. Yeshua, who was with the Father at creation, and he's agreed to come into the earth and poop in his pants. Have somebody change his diaper. Rely on mom to feed him. Learn to be a carpenter and so forth. I mean, think about it. One of the main objections I hear to to Yeshua being deity is, how could he come to the earth and take the form of a man? But that's the wonder of what he did. It's the greatest testimony of his love for us that he created us and made us in his image. And when we chose to separate ourselves from him, then he became like us to redeem us and bring us back into his image. You know, we often ponder the humility of what he must have suffered on the stake, but think of the humility of what he endured before he hung on the stake. Think of the love that he had for us to do what he did. One of the more terrifying thoughts that I can think of is to grow old and to one day have your own children have to take care of you. That one day you'd be once again reduced to little more than an infant, one who needs to be cared for. That your children would one day have to change your diaper, have to feed you, have to carry you to bed, have to get you out of bed, wash you. And if they didn't do that, you'd starve and die. It's terrifying to think about, isn't it? To be trapped in a body that you can't control, that becomes no longer a vehicle by which you experience life, but a prison in which you are chained. And yet that's exactly what Yeshua did for us. He had the dung wiped from his behind. He didn't eat unless Mary's spoon fed him. Think about it for a moment. The Son of God, who was with God at creation. Let's read this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and the trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. The one who was there at creation, and then we read in Matthew chapter 21, 19 and 20, early in the morning, he was on his way back to the city and was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. This is the one who, while on this earth, would again speak to the plants and living things, and they would obey. This is the Son of God at creation by whom all things were created. Listen to chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is the one with God who formed and raised man to life. And that while he was on earth, we read this in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 23. And when Yeshua entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but she's asleep. But they laughed at him, and after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up, and news of this spread throughout all the region. He raised from the dead with a single powerful word. And yet, he came into this world as an infant who couldn't speak a word. He's the one who commanded legions in heaven, and yet he came into this world where he couldn't even speak a word until Mary and Joseph taught him how to speak. That's what he subjected himself for us. He didn't come as one born of royalty into a house of means, but he was born in a house of poverty and hard work. Even though in his natural lineage he was sent, descended from kings, he was brought into the world this way. And one last thing about the lineage is that Joseph, as you might imagine, is not called the father of Yeshua, but it says Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Yeshua. Next, listen to verse 18. And it says, This is how the birth of Yeshua the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. What an amazingly simple way of telling this wonderful thing. It's one of the wonders of the Bible. This is so wonderful that people who call themselves Christians, but they want to push it off to the side of the table. Did you ever notice that? You don't hear this spoken of in a lot of, of, of churches anymore. But dear friends, this simple truth is written down because it is such a miraculous thing. Yeshua was miraculously conceived of a virgin. And we really miss the boat when we don't declare it. There's a tendency in the church not to declare it because of what the Catholic Church has done to the virgin birth. 
There's a great divergence, even in the Messianic community, in the Hebrew roots community, because there's so many instances of virgin birth in paganism and so forth. Many times people tell you that, hey, this is found in paganism, and the Catholic Church just fudged it. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. You cannot exclude something because you find it in paganism or some other religion. If we did that, we wouldn't have much of anything to believe anymore because I can tell you that there's one who's called our adversary who counterfeits just about everything in the Bible. We'd have to give up Messiah because there's going to be another false Messiah. And there have been many Messiahs in the past. They even call Obama the Messiah. Remember when they were calling Obama the Messiah? We could throw our faith in the ash can if we threw away everything because they were found elsewhere or in paganism. Folks, the virgin birth is the heart of what we believe. The virgin birth that made the good news possible is the greatest gift ever given to man, and we need to proclaim it as such. It's by the power of the good news to include that virgin birth that we are able to overcome even as Yeshua overcame. It's by the power, that power that we're able to leave behind the misdeeds of our forefathers and go on to be disciples of God as Yeshua did. It's by the power of the virgin birth of Yeshua that we're reborn into a new kingdom. It's by the power, that power that we are tried and tested as Yeshua, as Abraham, and as Isaac overcame. And let us not fall short, but proclaim loudly the love that God has for us. That he would not only die, but that he would also humble himself to our lowly estate, that he might be one with, that he might identify with, that he might intercede for. And let us proclaim that he is about to return in the same miraculous way, this time riding on the clouds of heaven, not as a baby, not as a pauper, but as a king, not unable to speak as last time, but this time, with one word, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is Lord of all. And he's going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. Amen. Folks, we serve an awesome God and Messiah and we need to believe and proclaim every hard word that's written about him. Amen. He's the God's son. And Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and because of that, and what he did while on this earth, which I might add, is equally questioned by those who call themselves sometimes believers. Because he died a sinner's death that he did not deserve, we live and breathe. And it's exactly that. He submitted himself to all that we must go through that he's able to make atonement for us, to intercede for us, to redeem us. And really, if we don't proclaim it loudly, we're not worthy of it.